Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Iyer, and we are going to talk today, surprise surprise, about the 2020 NHL Draft. Uh, we've been doing this obviously for a while, but we just wrapped up a series on The Athletic this week uh, going into kind of in-depth cases for six different players at uh, number four overall, which is where the Red Wings will be picking, and we wanted to zero in on kind of one aspect of that conversation today. I, I won't uh, I won't get too deep into it before I let Prashant talk here, but but broadly, I think we're going to spend the bulk of today's episode talking about the cases for and against uh, drafting a defenseman, which I think I think we'll probably start with a little bit of overview on some of the the overall uh, information from that series. But Prashant, uh, how you doing, and and how you feeling about the series? Anything stand out to you from it? Yeah, it's a, it was a really nice series, really good profile. It's kind of nice to hear um, from a lot of the different organizations and teams, almost, you know, to a certain extent, making cases for certain players, why they should go, you know, as high as fourth overall is where you're kind of profiling them. But I think one thing that was very interesting that came out of that series was I heard a lot of discussion and kind of saw a lot of discussion about, you know, the merits of taking a defenseman. And so two of the guys you profiled, obviously, Jamie Drysdale uh, and, and Jake Sanderson, um, kind of sparked some discussion about would the Red Wings be better served to take a defenseman, uh, given, you know, largely based on the fact that, one, you could solidify kind of that back end with the development of Moritz Sider, how kind of quick of a leap Gustav Lindstrom made, and kind of what you're seeing out of Albert Johansson in, in Sweden right now. Could you potentially solidify the back end, take a guy like Drysdale or Sanderson, and basically play from that strength moving forward in a division that's very forward heavy? So, you know, I thought that'd be a really interesting angle to tackle because it's a, it's a thought worth discussing. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I think broadly, you know, as we've talked about on this show, is very much as long as it's been in existence, you know, the the ideal draft obviously is you get the best player available at the latest spot you can possibly get him. I think that's kind of the definition you've used before on, on what kind of the perfect draft is. And, and for the Red Wings, with all these players we're talking about here, um, you know, the, the that really does mean at fourth overall. Trading back within the top 10 is historically not very common. It's pretty hard to really pull off, especially if you want to actually get the player you've identified. So when it comes to this pick, we really are talking about, you know, kind of the the just the top player on your board but I, I think there is always a little more nuance to it than that like there is always a little more than just you know who's the better player it's, it's such a complicated question and I think positional value really can't be divorced from that conversation is that fair to say yeah especially when you're talking about the margins between players towards the top of this draft being potentially razor thin I think afterwards even if your your mantra is best player available, if the margin is razor thin, you may, again, want to introduce positional kind of value in that perspective. And it's definitely something that should be at the forefront of the Red Wings' minds. You know, the argument I've seen laid out for reasons why to draft into uh, the defensive kind of group or take a defenseman early on is simply if you look at the other teams around uh, the Atlantic Division right now, they're absolutely loaded from a forward group perspective. Uh, you know, you've obviously got Tampa with Stamkos, Kucherov, Point, you know, all of them, Sorelli, Gord, Palat, that team's absolutely loaded. Boston's loaded with Bergeron, Marchand, and Pasternak. Uh, even, you know, teams like Florida with Barkov, Huberto, Dadinoff, Hoffman. Uh, really, you could go up and down that division, and Detroit's got the worst offensive group right now. So the, the argument I've seen for it is, well, why not draft – 
you know, heavily on the defensive side, maybe take a model similar to what St. Louis has done where you don't necessarily have these elite players up and down your forward lineup, but instead you build through the draft on the back end in defense. You get guys like Petrangelo, you get Pareko, you know, you had guys like Vince Dunn who can step in, other players that can play those big minutes on defense. And and in up front, you instead kind of lean for that player that can play in all situations, more of the two-way players. Obviously, Ryan O'Reilly is an outstanding player. Vladimir Tarasenko is an outstanding player, but you're not exclusively exclusively like loading up offensively to try and get in these shootout type games. So uh, it's definitely something worth considering given the razor thin margins, uh, I think at the top of this draft. Yeah. What it really comes down to is it it could be a suddenly a position of real strength in the Red Wings pipeline. Right. And, and kind of in that spirit, is it worth taking a couple minutes here to just kind of go through and and take stock for everyone so that, so that they know exactly what we're talking about with, with kind of who the NHL prospects are in the Red Wings D pipeline right now. Yeah. Running through obviously what the Red Wings already have right now, the, the big guy is obviously more at Sider sitting in, in Grand Rapids in the AHL. And certainly a lot of people are, are very excited about him uh, we still don't really have a confident projection in what he's going to be, but I think it, right now it's certainly reasonable to say this guy's a top four defenseman and could potentially be a minute eater for you, uh, although the offensive upside is probably a little limited. Um, and then after that, uh, I think the question marks are certainly there uh, as to who's maybe the second best prospect in the pipeline. Uh, obviously, we've talked at length about Albert Johansson and the great strides he made uh, this year over in the SHL. He was really heating up as the season shut down over there. Uh, Antti Tuomisto had a great season, albeit he was in the Finnish Junior League and he should have been playing uh, in Liga, but he wanted to preserve some eligibility to be able to come over to the NCAA. But he's, a, he's again, a, a promising, you know, big prospect with a great shot, great size. Uh, and then beyond that, we saw Gustav Lindstrom in the NHL this year for, you know, brief minutes. And Jarek McIsaac's likely going to jump to the AHL whenever that gets restarted there. So these are kind of the guys that are in the pipeline right now. And I think I have a realistic shot. But of those guys, the only one I'm confident or at least comfortable saying at this point right now is a top four defenseman is more at Sider. And so that's where I think the questions need to come into play about do you try and take the shot at the top of the draft where the margins are razor thin to go after that defenseman? Yeah, it, it, that's a great way of putting it. You know, there's there's a lot of talent and a lot of players in that pool. And I think it's fair to project that out of that pool is going to emerge at, at the very minimum, at least two kind of third pairing defensemen. I, I, I feel comfortable saying that at least at this point, that between Gustav Lindstrom, Dennis Chalowski, Jared McIsaac, Antti Tuomisto, Albert Johansson, I feel like you're going to be able to get at least a couple of third pair defensemen. Can one of them push the envelope and get to that kind of solid second pair? That'd be a huge win for them to join. You know, we, we both expect Moritz Sider to be there and Philip Ronick already obviously is. So if the Red Wings can get one of those guys to jump up a notch, that's great. But, you know, you don't know for sure if it's going to happen. And and I don't think you can operate as if it's going to happen. And so I think that's where you come in. And and so you take stock and you say, all right, there's probably two top four defensemen in here. Both of them play the right side. Um, But Philip Hronik, one of his best assets is his uh, right-handed slap shot and his one-timer. I'm curious, you know, I, I think he probably could play the left side if absolutely needed, um, you know, and, and it's it's always kind of a, a tough situation because I think it varies defenseman to defenseman how comfortable they are in their offhand. But but I think there's at least an argument for that from a, um, kind of what it would enable you to do tactics-wise with Philip Peronik. Yeah, he's a guy that, I mean, naturally you think, huh, he might be a good one to play on his offhand. A guy that he kind of reminds me of to a certain extent, uh, 
for older Red Wings fans is Matthew Schneider, who the Wings picked up in the early 2000s. Booming slap shot, but, you know, the Wings would best set him up on the offside, on the left side, so he could get that right-handed slap shot off. The guy had an absolute rocket, and I think Philip Ronick could potentially be utilized in a, in a similar fashion. So it's it's not, you know, beyond or out of the question to say that, you know, that's something to consider with him there. Yeah. So either way, though, I, I think kind of our, our point is you, you probably can comfortably project half of the future top four is in the organization. And, and you can certainly hope it's a little more than that. But I, I think just for the sake of uh, of being as careful as possible, just plan on it being half. And then that's where this conversation really begins. Can you find another piece of that top four and ideally a top pair piece at the top of this draft? And that is the, the question that is going to over, you know, kind of encompass all of this is is there a top pairing defenseman between Jamie Drysdale or Jake Sanderson yeah I think that's kind of the natural first question you have to ask yourself and you know when I look at this analytically neither one of them you know really jumps off the page as a guy that is going to do that if you're trying to identify you know players that have scored similar to them um, when they were juniors or players that have kind of performed similarly and kind of stylistically how do they appear you know, both of them, I think, could be minute-eating players. Uh, the difference is, are you going to get a guy that could jump in like a Kale McCarr, a Quinn Hughes, um, or are you going to be getting kind of the next tier down? And that's kind of where I settle out right now. I have some significant reservations about both Drysdale and and uh, Sanderson, particularly when it comes to taking them at four when you're thinking about the opportunity cost of the forwards available. Um my, my concern basically is neither one of them is a true one-two and neither one of them is really a, a bona fide top pair defenseman. And, and is that a gamble, again, that you're willing to make right now to solidify with a top four defenseman when you're potentially leaving, you know, a handful of, of first line players on the board with guys like Rossi, Perfetti, potentially Stutzla and, and, and other guys all being available at that slot. So to me right now, I don't see either Drysdale or or Sanderson as a comfortable top pairing defenseman, at least at this point. There are players that have scored similar to both of them that have gone on to be that. And there are players that have scored similar to both of them that have ended up being far less than that. You know, a guy like uh, Jamie Drysdale, a couple of comps that come up when I'm looking back through OHL defensemen is one guy is Michael Delzato, uh, a guy who's a great skater, a great scorer in juniors. He was a point per game uh, defenseman in his uh, draft year and, and ultimately he went in the first round at 20th overall and and hasn't really been able to stick uh, with one team you know routinely but at the same time the same year you have a guy like Ryan Ellis uh, who scores at the exact same rate as Delzato and he's also in the OHL and he gets drafted and now he's arguably one of the top defensemen in the NHL so uh, it's hard to project but I would say the confidence interval for me on both of these guys is quite wide. I think that's fair, but I will say, um, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about Jake Sanderson as recently as a couple months ago. I mean, obviously I knew who he was. I knew he was in that conversation for, at the time it would have been for the second defenseman kind of, because Jamie Drysdale for most of this year seemed to be kind of the consensus number one. But really as I was working on this series and, you know, with as much free time as, as we've had over the last few months, um, I've, I've gotten to dig more into Jake Sanderson and really the conversation with the NTDP coach, Seth Appert, um, I found to be one of the more compelling, you know, uh, 
you know, to say this about this, the series I just did, I found it to be one of the more compelling cases for a player. And I agree with what you said, but I don't think there is kind of that Quinn Hughes, Kale McCarr type um, in either of these two or necessarily in this draft. Those are really rare players. I don't think that means that neither of them can have, though, that kind of impact, even if it's not in the same style. Because while Quinn Hughes and Kale McCarr do it one way, there's lots of really good defensemen in the NHL who do it and have similar level impacts in just different ways. Now, for J- for Jake Sanderson, I would argue that it's, it's probably not as much on the, uh, you know, directly on the score sheet. But I do think, you know, I think there's an idea that he just doesn't help offense out there, at least from what I could gather reading some comments. And I don't really believe that. I, I think there's a lot of ways that defensemen can can influence offense and, and really help a team offensively without it being via just points. And I think a lot of that is, number one, getting the puck back and ending transactions. Uh, transition rushes and, and ideally with a team kind of getting caught going one way and now you've got a, a rush going the other way he's a guy who you know you watch the, the film on him Corey Promond an unbelievable video breakdown of him in June uh, and and you can really see that, that this is a guy who can end plays in the neutral zone and get the puck moving the other direction he also is a great skater maybe not quite as like electric looking as Jamie Drysdale but he's all, he's a very good skater and I, he, he's a guy who projects as kind of that really rock defensively and kind of showed more offense as the year went along. I think it's important to kind of note when, you, when you're looking at his production, it doesn't necessarily jump off the page, but he also, we're looking at his stats after playing all the toughest parts of the NTDP schedule, which is the NCAA games they played, and, and he would have been 17 years old playing uh, NCAA competition. And without some of the opportunities, this is one of the points Seth Appert made to me, without some of the opportunities to really add some points toward the end of the year, more USHL games and some of those international U18 games against his own age group. I think that's important to note. It doesn't totally change the picture because even if he's a point per game uh, player over what whatever it would have been, 15 games or so, you know, I, I think the raw number looks a lot better. But, you know, the points per game probably doesn't drastically change over the full season. But I do think it's important to note. And Sanderson's a guy who I now find myself saying, uh, I believe in, despite not really knowing probably enough about him a couple months ago. And so um, that's something that I've really, I've, I've kind of come on strong to, to his case over the last month or so, and especially working on this project. But but what do you think about kind of that concept of, of maybe not the style of a, of a Hughes or a Makar, but do you believe that a defenseman in Sanderson's mold can still have enough impact to give you real value at fourth overall? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree. And again, the the whole concept of, you know, Sanderson not driving offense and all of that, I think it's important to remember that with these USDP games, the development program games, there's very little statistical information available to people to actually even review what was done in the game. Uh, you don't really get shots. You don't get any of that information. You have no idea if they drove play when they were on the ice. Nothing like that. You, you're very, very limited in what you can use to analyze these uh, USDP games. And so ultimately, a lot of the analysis done on whether or not a player drives offense is simply the score sheet. And it's important to remember that, uh, I think we've stated this in the past, the USDP team this year was not anywhere near as good as the team last right. year. Yeah. And and by way of that, you're just not going to have as many points available. I mean, a guy like Alex Vlasic last year, who literally is not an offensive defenseman in any stretch of the imagination was scoring at the same points per game as Sanderson in the USDP games. And I think it's pretty clear that Sanderson's got better offensive instincts than that. And you're absolutely right about the USHL games. I think he missed the opportunity to, 
you know, do more with those games and kind of put up more. Um, the USHL games at least were able to see a little bit more st- statistically. So, you know, Sanderson in those games is basically a 61% even strength goals, 4 percentage player there, which is, you know, outstanding kind of plus 5% relative to his teammates. So, you know, it's possible that he he's able to get out there and have that kind of impact uh, on the game. And ultimately that's more important at the next level. You know, when we're, when we have more information, Points are not that great of a tool to evaluate players. I think it's, again, important to state that as well. Um, all that being said, uh, it's much more tangible to evaluate those forwards and feel comfortable that those forwards look really, really good when you don't have the same information available for Jake Sanderson to say the same thing. So I think you know a lot of the, the pushback out there is simply because you don't have as much information and you do have to basically rely on your your scouting eye to make that decision that yes, this guy can be an impact player at the next level. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I, it's, it's tough to, for the exact reasons you just laid out, it's kind of tough to build a statistical case in that way. And one of the risks you can get into in a situation like that is you can catch yourself kind of quote unquote dreaming too much on a player, right? Like, like if you look at the mold of players who I'm talking about, who maybe aren't score sheet uh, beasts, but are still perfectly effective offensively and, and end up being super impactful defensemen. And then you, you, you start talking about kind of your Ryan McDonough's, your Jacob Slavin's, uh, your Ryan Suter's, all these guys. I mean, I think Suter has two 50-point seasons. I don't know if either of the other two do. And those are guys who get Norris votes, you know, routinely. And, and that's the kind of the kind of impact I'm talking about. I'm not comparing uh, Sanderson to those guys. I, I, w- I should make that clear. But that's the type of player I'm referring to that you can kind of allow yourself to say, okay, well, if, if they can be a really good defensive player who is able to contribute offense, just maybe not on kind of grand level, um, that's the kind of player that you can start to think about. Um, not necessarily as Jake Sanderson, but just that mold, right? So I think that's where where you where you can get into some trouble is if you start to say, oh, well, then I am drafting Ryan McDonough. I am drafting, you know, Jacob Slavin, whatever. You know, you, you don't really have the statistical case that you would like to verify that or not. Yeah, that's exactly it. Is you just you don't have the same tangible feeling because you don't have the same information available. But if you get a guy, you know, a, a classic example of what you're talking about, Max, is Nicholas Jalmerson. The guy right. absolutely changed the game on the back end for the Blackhawks from a defensive standpoint. You didn't want to play against him. I mean, quite honestly, if you had a defensive defenseman award um, and you were just basing it on the last 20 years, this guy is the quintessential defensive defenseman that could also chip in a little bit points wise. And so, you know, do you want to take that at fourth overall? Well, if you were guaranteed to get a guy like Jalmerson, then you would have to consider it. The guy by far had the best defensive impacts really of any defenseman we've seen in the last 20 years, um, setting Nick Lidstrom outside of that window. I'm just going to say that. Um, but Jalmerson is, is a great example of if you can get that kind of player, um, it's it's outstanding. The problem is identifying that player correctly is very difficult. And, you know, Max, I sent you this as a text and I'm going to share it with everybody here. You know, there's a there's a phrase we use in, in medical literature when you're trying to come up with diagnoses from symptoms. And it's, you know, when you hear hoofbeats, think of a horse, not a zebra. So not everybody's going to be. Nicholas Jalmerson, because they look like a good defensive defenseman, you know, on the ice. And so you just have to make sure you're cautious with that. You're not overreaching with the information you have available. Yep. I think I think it's a great point. And, and so that's where kind of when I have the, you know, the conversation about Jake Sanderson's uh, case, it's impossible for me to have 
that conversation without wondering, well, if it's this player, then it shouldn't even be a conversation of whether that's the impact. But there's lots of other examples of of a player who might have kind of had that mold at age 18, or, or you could dream a little bit on him at age 18, uh, and they just don't pan out that way. And I think that that applies to forwards too. How many centers that are, you know, good skaters and capable defensively have you heard compared to Jonathan Taves or Patrice Bergeron over the years? And uh, I don't know, I'm willing to bet a, a fractional percent of them deliver on that potential. Yeah, I mean, exactly. The same case can be made for forwards. And I, I think it's really important to to recognize that that kind of information uh, swing goes both ways and that people overreach really all the time. And I think Dom Lachizan's article from earlier this month, looking at the value of a draft pick was really important because what it really goes to tell you is in each draft, there's probably three or four truly special players. After that, there's kind of a bucket of some good players. And then you're either getting average to non-NHL players after that. And so, again, that key really comes down to can you truly identify one of those special players and get them out of that draft? Otherwise, you may just end up with kind of a good or average player afterwards in those uh, top 10 slots. Yeah, so so the listeners have had to endure me listing off uh, Norris candidates while not comparing them to one of these two players. Uh, do we want to give them a little catnip, and do you want to give a comparison for either uh, Drysdale or, or Sanderson? I mean, I've given my concern for Drysdale in the sense that the Michael Delzato-type player sure. that's a great skater, moves the puck well, but just at the next level doesn't seem to have all the pieces to change the game, to have a p- consistently positive impact, like... You know, that that's the concern. Um, you know, Sanderson, I have a hard time really pinning a specific player uh, that is going to be that kind of game changing player at the next level. A guy that kind of comes to mind uh, a lot is like Robin Regeer back when he was playing for the Flames and then for the Kings. He was a really solid defensive defenseman that didn't put up a ton of points. Uh, big guy, really, uh, I wouldn't say he was the skater that Sanderson was, but that kind of archetype of player, again, that to me, that's a miss at four. And that's not a knock on Sanderson. That's not a knock on Drysdale. I think both of them are going to be, you know, average to good players at the next level at a minimum. It's just, can, is that the best you can do at four? And that's where my reservation kind of lies. Okay, I think that's fair, and I, and I also think you can do that for everyone at, at in consideration at four, right? Like it's it is very easy to hear the one of the common ones you hear is like Lucas Raymond is Mitch Marner, and then it's like okay, well if you can get if you can guarantee yourself Mitch Marner at four, you should take Mitch Marner at four, but you can't. And really, when we talk about ceilings and floors, one of the hard realities that it's it's pretty hard to um, to kind of convey is that floor doesn't really exist like the floor is they never make it and that's always a possibility with prospects yeah exactly and so that's that's just something you have to keep with it and you who knows uh you know what happens and honestly a lot of what prospects become uh we should state this is largely dependent on the development team absolutely um, and so it's it's very hard to say what a floor is because the floor could be very different from team to team yep yep all right all right so We've kind of heard that that uh, cautionary tale on on upside on both of them. I think it's a fair fair consideration. Like we've talked about, I don't I don't think even with kind of perfect development, there's much chance either of these guys is kind of a Kale McCarr level scorer in the NHL. Fair? Yeah, completely agree. But both of their descriptions that that we profiled in the series 
profile them as kind of true three-zone defensemen and, and guys who have the potential to make a difference in all three zones because of their skating and because of their hockey sense. Uh, in Sanderson's case, so you could probably add some size in there. I think he's 6'2", about is what we have him at. So there is kind of the the kit there to be you know impact players, even if we don't think it's going to be kind of in that high-scoring mold. And so let's just say for a minute that the Red Wings are sold that one of them or both of them like have that, you know, have that potential or they're, there's, they're confident they can get them to that level. Is there a good case then to be made for drafting these guys on the grounds that we were talking about earlier? Let's try and build out the case, not for either one of them necessarily, but for drafting a defenseman who you think can be that true impact three zone defender uh, and can do it, you know, from either the left side, in Jake Sanderson's case, balancing things out with Moritz Sider, or from Jamie Dreisel's case, kind of as that elite skating defenseman that they don't really have in the system right now. Yeah, I mean, both of them would be defensemen that the Wings really don't have that kind of style. Maybe you could say Sanderson's a little bit closer to Sider, but all that being said, uh, you're still going to get a defenseman that's instantly one of your two best defensive prospects. And kind of how you know I outlined at the beginning of the show the the wings are in a very offense heavy division I mean they had four of the top 10 scoring teams in the NHL are in their division four of the top 10 power plays are in their division and so if you're trying to think about playing from strength from the back end you can maybe talk yourself into the strategy about saying hey let me grab one of these guys who's instantly going to be one of my top two defensive prospects and and recognize that a lot of these you know top 10 defensemen that are drafted tend to make the NHL within one to two years. And so it's a, it would be a reasonable strategy to, again, be able to add a quality NHLer uh, early on. You know, you've got the ability to develop both of these guys, both excellent skaters in today's kind of fast-paced NHL. You can make that argument that you need to build from the back end moving forward uh, to deal with the teams that are in their division, with Toronto having all their young stars and and obviously Tampa's not going anywhere. Boston's not going anywhere. Florida's getting better. Buffalo's still got Eichel and, uh, you know, Reinhardt and a couple other guys like that. So, you know, there, there's the opportunity. And then you also think about Ottawa as well, who's going to get two of the top, uh, you know, four players in this draft. And they're going to potentially be able to, uh, um, you know, add a couple of pieces there as well, uh, potentially Byfield, potentially Stutzla. So, you know, it's going to be tough there. But uh, that being said, that's that's kind of the case in my mind. What about kind of one of the the refrains that you'll hear when you when people talk about why the Red Wings shouldn't take a defenseman, whether it be Drysdale or Sanderson? The case gets made because the top of next year's draft does look like there's going to be some really interesting defensemen in it, whether that's Owen Power, who seems like he could challenge for kind of the very top of the draft, Brant Clark, Luke Hughes, yes, there is another one, uh, Daniel Chaika, Simon Edvinson, Carson Lambos. I mean, the the it's it's. At least in the early going, it's looking like a draft where you might be able to find some good defensemen in it. Do you find that compelling as a reason to steer away from picking a defenseman at fourth overall this year? I I don't know that that alone should be a compelling reason, just again, given the variance in draft position that we know about. I mean, you know, none of us are really expecting the Wings to go out and challenge for a playoff spot next year. I think that's pretty clear, but you, you just have to be a little cautious about basing draft strategy on a year out. Uh, given that you don't necessarily know where you're going to pick. And also from the Red Wings standpoint, next year, you know, we know how the Red Wings never have any lottery luck. Well, remember, Seattle is going to get added in next year as well. So there's a potential that even if you're the worst team, you know, you're still drafting four or five, I believe is how the odds 
played out when Vegas was added. So it's it's not a great idea to solely base the strategy on that. But that being said, there's potentially as many as nine or ten defensemen that are going to go in the first round next year and a lot of really good ones. And a lot of them are going to be really close, uh, you know, for the Red Wings scouting staff to look at. I mean, Owen Power is going to be at the University of Michigan. You've got Daniel Chaika is going to be in Guelph. Brant Clark is going to be in Barrie. You know, Luke Hughes is going to be with the development program, and he's planning on going to Michigan the year after. Um, you've got, you know, Aiden Reshik is going to also be in the development program. Uh, so there's a lot of guys that are going to be very local for them to, to pay attention to. Um, but that being said, you don't really want to base your strategy on that because of the variance associated here. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And I, I think you don't want to draft one year ahead because you just don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, on one hand, you could say, well, what if they take a defenseman and they get the, you know, they get the pick that should be Owen Power? Well, then they should just take Owen Power. And then your top four of the future is going to be Owen Power, Moritz Sider, Jake Sanderson, Philip Hironik. It's kind of like a don't threaten me with a good time situation. And if, <laughs> if, if there's not a defenseman who's worthy of that next year, then you're going to take Kent Johnson or you're going to take Chaz Lucius or you're going to take Atu Roddy. And that could be the you know kind of the best player available, the right thing to do at that time. So it's not like there's no good forwards next year. It's just that it's kind of notable as a class with a lot of good defensemen. And I think whether whichever way it goes, whether you end up having an unbelievably promising young top four all filled with studs, or you take forwards both years, I don't think either is a catastrophic problem. It's just about having the best team at the end of the day. Completely agree. And that's where, you know, exactly how you put it, don't threaten me with a good time. If I end up with Owen Power and James Jamie Drysdale out of two drafts. Well, that's not a bad way to be. I mean, you're going to be playing from a position of strength, uh, like how Nashville has done in years past, how Carolina has done in years past. When they hit on defensemen routinely, it all of a sudden leads to these being consistent playoff teams. Nashville and Carolina are kind of built, you know, back end first, and and that's a that's a strategy to build it. So. Uh, I, I think that's a completely reasonable way forward. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I want to take one quick break here, and then uh, we'll, we'll get to a couple other topics on this. Um, but I just wanted to give you guys a quick message from our friends at DraftKings. Grab your peanuts and popcorn. Baseball is back. That's right. The boys are getting back out on the diamond this week. And while we may not be able to join them at the park, there is plenty of action to be had from the comfort of your home. DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports, is putting you on the field with a shot to play risk-free for a shot at hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you haven't tried it yet, fantasy baseball is easy to play. Just pick 10 players, stay under the salary cap, and pile up points for hits, runs, strikeouts, and more. There's no better way to put your baseball knowledge to the test than to compete for a shot at hundreds of thousands of dollars. But if baseball isn't for you, don't worry. DraftKings is offering plenty of fantasy golf action for this weekend's tournament, too. With millions of dollars up for grabs this week, there's no better place to have skin in the game than with DraftKings. Download the DraftKings app now and use promo code RUN to get a free shot at a share of millions of dollars up for grabs this week with your first deposit. That's promo code RUN to get a free shot at a share of millions of dollars with your first deposit, only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Okay, getting back into this, uh, we were talking about kind of the the roster construction angle and the future implications. And one of the things that I also have kind of wondered about um, with drafting defensemen and, you know, they took more at Cider last year. You're looking at a world where they take them back to back. And if you really want to get down the road, I guess you have to acknowledge the possibility for taking 
defenseman in the first round and potentially the top 10 in three drafts in a row. Part of me, though, wonders, is there any roster construction argument for that? We, we kind of have the sense that defensemen seem to take a little longer to, to make the NHL or, or to at least to kind of reach their potential. Is there an argument for getting those guys early? And then that way, maybe when you do get your... Uh, you know, franchise player at forward who maybe can step right in and, and be that player, as we've seen some top picks do, you already have kind of the wheels in motion on the back end. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. I mean, the whole timeline of t- defensemen taking longer to make it's been interesting to to consider. Um, you know, obviously, Namita Nandakumar is an analyst for NHL Seattle uh, has written about this in the past. And, and interestingly, she found that that's definitely true when you're talking about a player's draft year, like if from from the draft to going into the NHL and playing 40 games, uh, only about 10 percent of first round defensemen actually do that compared to about 18 percent of forwards doing that. So there's there's a definite gap there where almost twice as many forwards are ready to go right out of the get go and playing 40 NHL games. But the defensemen actually make that up by the end of the second year where after two, you know, two years post draft. Uh, you're looking at about 30% of defensemen and 30% of forwards being in the NHL. So, you know, the argument that the defensemen take a little bit longer, um, I don't always buy. I think particularly towards the top of the draft where uh, you're getting a a potentially more refined prospect and one that you're a little bit more confident about. Um, And even out to four or five years out, it's still relatively similar to where I don't think the, the gap between making it is that huge. The other interesting piece that comes with it, though, is while the the forwards that tend to make the NHL earlier tend to be of a higher quality, that's not always true for defensemen. A defenseman that makes the, the league four or five years out isn't all that different from an average quality perspective from the defenseman that makes it kind of year one and year two. So, you know, I think that's the the important caveat to to that selection there is I think it sort of suggests that we're not as confident in our ability to pigeonhole what a defenseman is, which goes back to kind of what I was stating earlier, that my confidence interval on Drysdale and, and Sanderson is quite wide. I'm less confident in what they're going to be. And I think that kind of bears out to where if you look at the quality of player and the amount of time it takes them to make, the guys that tend to make it earlier are the guys you drafted earlier and you drafted higher, and therefore you're kind of pushing them through your system a little bit faster. But the guys that come along a little bit later are you know, not all that different from a quality standpoint. So you know, from a roster construction standpoint, if you're very confident in what these guys are going to be, then yeah, absolutely take them. And they're going to be ready in one to two years, you know, most likely. But beyond that, I do think you have to be a little bit careful that you're not jumping the gun and kind of overreaching on that position. Yeah, you you can certainly look back and and say, you know, there's a a player who, you know, was kind of supposed to be this... this heralded top five defenseman pick and doesn't pan out. You can do it for forwards too, though. And and I think, um, you know, your point about the the length of time not being as predictive for defensemen um, is interesting. And I, I kind of wonder what the reasoning would be. Do we think that's more the variability in physical development and kind of how size for defensemen still seems to matter maybe a little more than, than maybe we would think it would for forwards because they just, they have kind of more, more duties, more responsibilities in the corner in those kind of muck and grind situations? Do we think it's just a, there's, you know, a lot of them maybe go to, go the college route and that kind of naturally inflates the time? Is there any hypotheses as to why why we find that correlation uh, or, or don't find that correlation as clearly in defensemen? 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting one and one that I've thought about, but not necessarily evaluated. I think yeah. one one hypothesis that goes into it is is kind of the the route that the defenseman takes. So a lot of the guys that I think are taken in year in rounds three, four, and five tend to be the smaller international defensemen. And so you're able to actually stash them over in Europe and let them, you know, play their way through, you know, a couple of years in Liga, a couple of years in the SHL, all Svenskin, wherever they're at then come over, get a transition year, and by the time you're getting them, you're kind of hitting a refined product at that point. I think that's certainly one hypothesis. Um, You know, another potential hypothesis is kind of what you were saying, Max, is that potentially, you know, it takes them a little bit longer to to physically develop, and when you get the guys that do physically develop, those are the ones that you uh, are bringing over a little bit later, and potentially they're in a better spot to to have more success. The thing that really sticks with me, though, is potentially the most likely thing is we just don't evaluate defensemen very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's why it's a little bit more of a crapshoot. And the guy you get in a later round, you're not necessarily pushing to bring to the NHL early, but all of a sudden they get there and now they're really, really you know, good or they're looking really good relative to some of the guys you may have taken earlier. You know, I think a funny example of this, honestly, is uh, I tout Carolina a lot. Carolina is one of the few teams that's actually gone defensemen back to back to back years in the first round. They did it in 2014, 15, and 16 with Hayden Fleury, Noah Hannafin, and Jake Bean. Only one of those guys is on the NHL roster. One was traded for Dougie Hamilton, and the other one still hasn't made it out of the AHL consistently yet, although Jake Bean is looking very, very good. Um, but if you look at Carolina's defensemen, it's, it's Jacob Slavin that's been able to play big minutes. It's Trevor Van Riemsdyk as a free agent signing. It's trading Hannafin for Dougie Hamilton. It's, it's Pesci. you know, Brett Pesci, right? You know, it's it's the guys that weren't touted as the top 15 pick as being Hannafin and Flurry were that actually have made that difference. So to me, the, the hypothesis really is that we're just not good at evaluating defense. It's an interesting hypothesis, and I, I would buy it to a degree. And kind of along those lines then, let's talk about, let's say the Red Wings do want to kind of employ a strategy of stocking up on, on defensemen without maybe investing a pick. I think this is their highest pick in 30 years, I believe, is, is the, yeah. the time frame. Let's say they, they still want to do it, but they don't want to use that pick. Who are the other defensemen in this draft who you would say would have a crack at being kind of a future piece? It's somewhere in the top four. You would feel fairly confident saying they've got a shot at the top four. Yeah. You know, right now, if you look at the likelihood of success for the defensemen that are drafted out of Liga and the SHL, guys that have actually reached that tier, um, it's quite good relative to the CHL defensemen. And so guys that stand out to me is Topi Nimela, who's playing in Liga right now, finished defenseman. You know, some people have had him anywhere from 20 to 50, but he's a guy you might be able to stash with one of those uh, three second round picks that the Red Wings have that he's a guy that I think right now, if you draft him, he kind of sits as a, a four to me. If you look back to last year, a guy who was slightly better than than Nimela, but Vili Hainola, who was drafted by Winnipeg, you know, he was taken uh, towards the end of the first round, but all of a sudden he had a great year and actually was able to get some games in. And so... You know, Nimela is a guy that, that kind of strikes me like that. Emil Andre, while he didn't necessarily make it to the SHL, um, had a dynamite year in the Super Elite. He's certainly smaller uh, at five foot nine, but he's a guy that's an, that seems to be an excellent puck mover, excellent uh, you know decision maker. Skating's maybe not where you want it to be. Uh, William Wallander is a big defenseman, skates really well. Again, got to some of the upper tiers of Sweden's uh, top leagues. And then Helga Granz is another guy you have to talk about as well. 
any of those four guys, I think you you kind of say, hey, these guys have legit top four potential um, if you're taking them, and you may be able to get them significantly later than you would have to take a guy like Drysdale or Sanderson. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't think, certainly I don't think you can ha- be as confident in any of those guys uh, as I think you could in, in a Drysdale or a Sanderson. And that that's the trade-off you make by, you know, going away from the pool of the top two defensemen in the draft to maybe that tier of, of guys who could be available around pick 32. And I, that is, it's a sacrifice. But especially with what you're saying about the, the ability to kind of easily predict defensemen being more difficult, um, I don't, it's maybe not as big a sacrifice as going away from the Raymond, Rossi, Perfetti, Holtz tier and expecting to get a similar player like that at 32. Yeah, and that's where I'm at is I think the variance just associated with the first round guys versus the later round guys for defensemen is just substantially higher, you know, relative to the forwards. I think it's a lot easier at least to be more confident in the forwards because you have more information, you have more tangible information that you're able to make the decisions on. And for, I think right now, GMs are just a little bit more comfortable making those evaluations. Uh, There's just simply not been that same level of success routinely when it comes to drafting defensemen. Uh, And so that's kind of the the challenge that uh, I think the Red Wings are facing. And I think that's where you know, potentially you want to take a shot at these guys in the second round where you've got a lot of lottery balls and you want to use your first round pick at four on something that you can feel a little bit more confident about. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then let's wrap up here. What do you think about the idea of of the Red Wings drafting? What what would kind of be your reaction were the Red Wings to draft either Drysdale or Sanderson uh, on October 9th? Yeah, I mean, I've obviously made a lot of jokes about this on Twitter, but at the end of the day, realistically, I don't have a huge problem with what happens because again a lot of this is is a guessing game uh while i am less confident in the ability of drysdale or sanderson to be that top pairing defenseman a lot of that analysis like i just said is based on statistics which thus far have not really been shown to be predictive consistently of defensemen making the next level at the highest level um and so I will certainly be the first to admit that what I base my opinion on for that is not the most sound rock to to make that opinion. So I don't have an issue if if the Red Wings scouting staff has decided that, hey, you know, Jamie Drysdale is the player I need to take at four or Jake Sanderson is the player I need to take at four because I firmly believe in my evaluation ability to, to push those guys up uh, to be these top-pairing defensemen. The caveat I'm going to have and I'm going to hang on to is I just simply think we're not great uh, at evaluating defensemen right now. And there's a couple of guys that seem like pretty strong uh, candidates to be top pair, you know, top line, if not top six players that are going to be available for Detroit. So you're just going to always have to balance it with that. Uh, What are you giving up? And so it'll be all right. It'll be fine. You'll get through it. You're likely going to get an average to good player. Um, and you're kind of hoping that when you swung for the fence, they actually get there. Yeah, I like what you're saying about kind of knowing the limits of, of what the statistical analysis will provide. I'll also add, though, and I'm, I'm sure, I mean, obviously you know this, it's still better than nothing, right? So I think it, just in case there's anyone out there listening who's like, wait, are you are you saying now that you, you don't trust the stats? No, it's, 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 it's just knowing the bounds of how much to trust them, right? Like you, you can't just criticize based on one aspect of the evaluation when it's only part of the picture. And I think it's better to have some of the picture than none of the picture. And it's it's certainly ideal to have the whole picture. But the whole picture is really hard to find when evaluating an 18-year-old hockey player. 
That's exactly it. You don't have the whole picture. The whole picture comes after they've developed. And and right now, we don't have any analysis on development strategies for players to know that if Jake Sanderson is drafted by Detroit, how does he develop differently than if Jake Sanderson is developed by Edmonton? Mm-hmm. It, it depends, you know? You know, you, you'll never know uh, if Neil Yakupov is different when he, if he's drafted somewhere else, if Nolan Patrick is different if he's drafted somewhere else. You just don't know. So, you know, at the end of the day, you, you use what information you have, which, you know, I've used the information I've got. I'm going to tell you that uh, at the end of the day, my confidence in confidently saying what someone's going to be is not there for defensemen. Um, but the early indicators to me are you're better off shooting at the forward where you can feel a little bit more confident in what they're going to be. Yeah. Ultimately, I think I'm I'm still pretty close to where I was at the at the start of the series, and that I, I I think Lucas Raymond would be probably the the pick if I were the if I were making the call. But I have less information than the people who are right. So it's you know whether it's Raymond Rossi Perfetti, I think there's some really interesting forward options there. But I did the series for a reason, and I did it with these six players for a reason. And I think it's I wanted to show there are good cases to be made for a lot of players here. And so when it comes down to time to make the pick, they're going to have to make a really tough call, right? They're going to have to they're going to have to pass on guys who there's a really good case to pick. And they're going to have to pick a guy who has question marks. That's that's the nature of picking fourth overall. So uh, I, I don't think that I, I would be, you know, critical just offhand of, of picking either of these two. I think there's really good cases to, to, to draft both of them, really good things about their games to think you can build on and build around, and a really good case to have a team that's built from the back end. There's also really good cases to have super skilled, really smart forwards, which seems to kind of be uh, a, a sort of must in order to score goals. But uh, you can win the game I, from either way. I, I firmly believe that. I think there's really good cases for uh, for all the guys we profiled, and uh, that's why we did the series. So we just wanted to do that episode today to kind of talk about picking the defenseman. It seemed to be kind of a sticking point in the comments and in some discussion online. So uh, hopefully people feel like they got something out of it. Yeah, and uh, I will go ahead and say this: we are not going to make the case for Yaroslav Askarov because I'm not. I'm just not going to do it. That's right. I might write something. I mean, I'm going to have to write something eventually about kind of that that topic. Uh, but I, you know, I, I didn't have kind of the the same uh, insight that I would have been able to include. I didn't have kind of an interview on him, and so I didn't. I don't think it made sense in that format. I will eventually write about it. I know there are people out there who will want me to do that, um, but I will say right here, you know, on, on the show, I, I think I'm kind of with you at this point on. You know, if you, if you think taking a defenseman is passing on a lot of upside for some risk, let me tell you a little bit about the idea of picking a goalie. Yeah, not not a spot you want to be in. Sure, yeah. All right. All right, that's going to do it for us. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us, and uh, we'll be back at you soon. I don't know for sure if it'll be next week. We're kind of on a little less regular schedule uh, now in this off season, but uh, we'll be back at you soon either way. Thanks for listening.